Welcome back to the MicroConf podcast. This is another MicroConf refresh episode where we look back at previous MicroConfs and we take some of the best talks and put the audio in this feed. We also include a link to the YouTube video in the show notes for this episode if you want to go watch the talk or see the slides. This week's talk is from MicroConf Europe 2019. It was a keynote talk from Andy Iyem. The title is Using Mental Models and Principles for Better Decision Making, where he looks at how mental models can help us make different types of decisions and how by using specific frameworks, we can focus on solutions that aren't immediately obvious. Hope you enjoy this talk from MicroConf Europe 2019. honored to actually be here and be a part of this community because I speak I speak quite often even though I can't get my words out I speak quite often and um, it's very rare to attend events firstly that have such a beautiful scenic view um, but also that there's actually a true sense of community and every time I've entered into the elevator I've been walking in the walkways there's always been someone welcoming me and saying hello introducing themselves and sharing a story and one of the common links that I'm seeing in these stories is that you know, some of us work in quite isolated environments where we're quite lonely and we work alone. And some of the places that were mentioned were little towns in the middle of Italy or actually like a town outside of London in the UK, such as Bristol. And it's nice to come together and know that we've got shared challenges in this room and there's a community of people that we can turn to for that accountability and to help with making decisions. Just by a show of hands before I start, how many people here chose what gender they were born? Wow, that's pretty unanimous apart from the, the genius over here. Um, so decisions such as that, such as, you know, what socioeconomic background we're born into or actually what city we're born into were all variables that were outside of our control. But as soon as actually we are born into these places, we make a series of decisions across the lifespan of, lifespan of our life. And it's not very often that we spend enough time thinking about thinking. And today I want to do just that. I want to spend some time actually introducing you to some of the mental models that have helped me along the way to make smarter decisions. It was quite interesting listening to, to Peldi earlier on, um, given our, his initial talk, and there were certain decisions that he made that were quite contrarian to what you usually hear. Like he released, uh, the last time he updated that software was in 2006 for My Balsamic. You know, he doesn't look at analytics, he was telling you yesterday over dinner. You know, and it's quite interesting sometimes when you read or you absorb this content and you feel like you're getting a formula that you want to apply to your business, but then over time when you get more confidence, you start figuring out actually the guiding principles that you adhere to and the way that you make decisions regardless if it, if it agrees with the market or not. So first I want to share kind of a few lessons that I've learned working in venture. Um, I know it's, 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 it's got a love-hate relationship similar to Marmite. Um, but venture capital is quite an interesting industry for me because about five years ago when I was blogging and really sharing a lot of content about this intersection that I was fascinated with in between startups, investments, and people of color, I noticed that within venture actually less than 1% of, of venture capital goes towards uh, black founders. Less than 5% goes towards women. You know, almost 95% was concentrated in just three states alone in the US. And for me, this was a hypothesis that I wanted to disprove. I thought, surely this doesn't mean that great ideas can't come from everyone. After all, talent is widely distributed, but clearly invention opportunity isn't. So then I set out to, to join an accelerator, um, a VC called Backstage Capital. 
And their kind of primary investment thesis was that they're going to invest in women, people of color, and LGBT founders. And at the time, the challenge was to build their accelerator program from scratch and then invest 2.5 million into 25 different startups. So I led the London program. And during that, that kind of like uh, experience, there's a few things that came up that were quite interesting. Firstly, um, VCs are not that into you. The truth is they actually invest in less than 1% of new businesses created. But yet on the media, it feels as if that becomes a funding option for us. You know, this crowd is actually quite different in that respect in that a lot of you are bootstrapping, um, but you're gonna get to a point, some of you, where you're in crowded markets, competed with people that are funded, and then you're gonna have to consider in terms of cash flow, where's that working capital gonna come from? And it's either gonna come from an investment or it's gonna come from leveraging debt. The second thing that I noticed that is in serving diverse founders, a lot of them were non-technical. So a lot of them actually couldn't actually write code. A lot of them were starting businesses such as hair care businesses or subscription boxes or tech-enabled e-commerce businesses or direct-to-consumer businesses. So actually the model of support and investment they needed was different. And the third thing I noticed was that actually the true value and differentiator is the value beyond the capital. It's actually how we, pro how we provide value through our domain expertise, similar to the mentors on the Tiny Seed program, for example, but also the relationships that we have and the way we're able to introduce founders into certain places that are difficult to navigate, even, even into new partners or new customers or even potential new investors. So next year, actually, what I'm working on as an entrepreneur in residence, which really is a fancy word for actually I'm buying myself time while I'm working on my next idea, is I'm working on an angel investing school that teaches investors how to invest patient long-term capital into founders basically providing working capital over a longer period of time and not being restrained by what would typically be VC returns or VC-type businesses. So we're training diverse operators how to start investing in businesses such as yourselves, for example. Because one of the hard things, especially as a bootstrapper, is finding an angel investor or a single investor that's willing to invest in you when it's such a fragmented market and all people end up doing is either turning to people they know within their networks or going on AngelList or on LinkedIn. The second thing I want to touch on is, is content, community, and capital. And by capital, what I really mean is actually product experiences and great product experiences that leads to revenue. It's such an under, undervalued option for founders to really double down on actually the most cost-efficient and effective form of marketing, which is organic which is through putting in that content. We had a talk on SEO this morning for five years, for six years. Through forming communities, like the community that you're part of now, but around your product experiences. Like it was interesting actually, even reading some of the story of yourself, Rob, where you've gone from creating blogs originally to certain e-products, to then uh, a single SaaS tool with a single channel market for marketing, to actually a group of SaaS tools to eventually forming Drip. But even with this conference, it's the same kind of story. There was content at the beginning, then there was a community that was formed, and that's leading to opportunities like us being in this room today. And it's similar for myself. I can't write a line of, a line of code, but I always engage with my customers early and often, so I always get a sense of what problems they're suffering from and how to answer them. And here on this slide, this is an example of that. You know? I sent a tweet out um, maybe two months ago to ask like, people that follow me, what, what blogs, podcasts, and newsletters do you read or subscribe to? And this gave me a list of 85 different newsletters, blogs, and, and um, podcasts that they listen to. But what this gave me was insight into understanding what content they're absorbing and what they actually like, 
so I could write response pieces or record response videos to that. But it also gave me insight into the places I need to feature because it showed me where their attention was. And sometimes when we think of competition, we think of a competitive product when really the competition is where someone's attention is. It's actually what are the existing alternatives that are taking them away from my product today? And through forming that content, it leads you then to understand actually where your consumer's attention is. And once you understand that, you can double down on what's working and create community around it. And this example here on this slide actually was where I, I did that. I got that list of 85. I learned that a lot of people were struggling to learn how to, for example, break into venture. I wrote a, a, a blog post about unconventional ways to break into venture by developing a personal brand because the first page of Google is now your CV, whether you like it or not. Because when I add you on LinkedIn or when I'm about to have a meeting with you, if I'm interviewing a new staff member, I'm going to Google you. And what comes up is going to represent who you are to me as a first impression. And then off the back of that, I released an ebook called Breaking Into New Careers. Actually, last week was like, it sold 500 pounds worth of, of books after uh, uh, two weeks. But actually, through going to that, pro through that process of going from that problem, which was discovered through content, to form a community, to releasing this product, it's accelerated that learning opportunity for me by going through that process. And next, I want to talk a little bit about thinking about thinking, which is going to be the bulk of this talk today. So I spend a lot of time, probably too much time, thinking about decision-making and actually the compound effects of decisions that we make. And one of the ways that has helped me along the years kind of keep accountable to myself is by keeping a journal. And there's not many opportunities when you're in execution mode and you're very reactive to think introspectively around kind of the decisions you make and the results of those decisions. So I just keep a Google Doc pinned to my tabs on my Google Chrome where I just write down key moments and key decisions. And what I do every six to 12 months is look back and connect the dots. And it allows me to track the results and understand actually what to double down on because it's working and actually maybe what to reduce or eliminate because it's not. And I'd encourage you all to consider doing something like that so that you have a mechanism of really like holding yourself accountable and looking back at what's working and what's not. Not only for your companies actually, but even individually and personally. So 15 months ago, I joined Backstage Capital, where I said I invested in women, people of color, and LGBT founders. And one of the things that this work really nurtured me to do is think about inclusion on a continuous basis and what it actually means. And to me, it means like, who's not in the room? You know, so whose who's perspective is not being shared, for example, at this conference on stage? Or whose opinions are not being heard and acted on at that meeting that you're having at work? Or whose voices are not being heard and acted on when we're creating the very innovations that are serving the world that we're living in? I can tell you who's not in the room today. My daughter or my fiance. So this is gonna give me an opportunity to get a few things off my chest. I heard some of you saying, ah, oh, this little terror. Let me share some more about her. So like many of you in the room, many of the founders here, she's a continuous learner and she loves to feed her curiosity. And one of the ways that she feeds her curiosity is when we take local trips to our, to our farm. And at the farm, when the cows moo, she moos. When the ducks quack, she imitates them and quacks. The horses never neigh, but she'll neigh anyway. You catch my drift. And then she'll probably publicly try and embarrass me further by getting us to sing songs together, such as, row, row, row the boat, gently down the stream. Daddy, crocodile, crocodile, huh? If you see your crocodile, don't forget to scream, ah! She'll laugh every time. 
But I understand what my daughter's doing. My daughter's leading on a general framework that she's learned that many kids her age do, to learn through song and play. But I also understand that my daughter's going to grow up very differently than I did growing up here in Tottenham, North London. And so she should, because she needs a different set of skills and experiences to navigate this life that she's going to live. But one thing that we do share is our love for spending moments alone in solitude, in nature. For some people, that's when you're taking a long walk, that's when you're hiking, when you're swimming. I saw some people even this morning going to the gym. But for me, it's these long time moments in nature where I can think deeply. How do you make decisions on a consistent basis? For my daughter, it's through song and play. Like I mentioned, she sings songs about the alphabet, numbers, and even animals. And that's how she's learned. For myself, mental models is how I consistently make decisions in a smart way because it holds me accountable to understanding why I made those decisions and how to make better decisions in the future. So the three models that I really want to touch on today are first principle thinking, second order thinking, and inversion. And just to note, these are three out of a lattice work of dozens of different mental models that, that can be used for better decision making, such as the Pareto principle, 80-20, or the sunk cost fallacy. So what are mental models? In 1994, Charlie Munger, chairman of Berkshire Hathaway and business partner to Warren Buffett, gave a talk at USC Business School. And at this talk, he kind of shared his business and investing philosophy. And in the process of giving this talk, he introduced a crowd to a general framework for making wise decisions, which he referred to as mental models. By definition, mental models are basically frameworks for thinking, but they help you do two things in particular. They help you understand and recognize how systems work, and once you have that understanding, they help you make better decisions as a consequence. So essentially, it's about understanding the structure of a problem and learning what thinking system to apply to that problem. By a show of hands, how many people have invested in cryptocurrencies? I'm surprised there's not more. I know investing is actually maybe not the right word. Speculative trading could have been used instead. So in 2008, we saw a real spike, right? And it was quite interesting because so many people were getting involved with investing in cryptocurrencies when actually we knew that there wasn't necessarily a value to the underlying asset. It wasn't like we were going to our local supermarket, picking out our fruits and our, our, our goods, going to the till and paying by Bitcoin. It wasn't as if even from your airports to here, um, when you arrived along the weekend, you paid by Litecoin. So we wasn't seeing the everyday application to these, but what we saw was a mental model in practice called surfing. And surfing is really just about riding the wave of a new technology, product, or trend. But when you recognize this problem, then you recognize what mental models at work. The mental models that we're going to go through today share three basic components. One, they help you to, there you go, they help you to challenge, they challenge you to keep things simple. And sometimes this is seen as actually a downfall of mental models because they simplify complex phenomena. Secondly, they help you to reframe problems. And this is often useful when you're doing customer development or product discovery so that you're figuring out what the right problem to solve is for the right set of customers. And finally, although they're not a silver bullet, they're an aid to help you think different. Not necessarily better solutions, but to think about different solutions. So first principle thinking is really about breaking down complicated problems into its component parts and then generating different ideas to solutions based off of that. 
So let's take my friend, Mr. Elon Musk, as an example. In 2002, he embarked on this journey and this quest to send the first rocket to Mars, an idea that, of course, later became popularized as SpaceX. And on this journey, he went to speak to aerospace manufacturers to learn how much it would cost to build a rocket. $65 million. He's getting quoted that much to build a rocket. So he decided, actually, rather than paying $65 million, let me lean on my background studying physics and turn to first principle thinking. So what he did instead was turn to the commodities market to figure out how much would it cost to buy each of these individual components. You know, things like copper, carbon fiber, um, aluminium, um, rocket grade aluminium alloys. And when he did, he found out that the cumulative total cost of those individual parts was 2% of the price that he was quoted. So rather than pay 65 million, he decided to sell SpaceX, go to the commodities market and actually buy these individual materials. He built a rocket and ended up being 10x the price that he was quoted and he still made a profit. First principle thinking is all about answering that kind of basic question of how would I start this problem from, how would I solve this problem from scratch more efficiently? It's not about going to the most granular level of a problem, but usually about one or two levels deeper to get to a fundamental truth. Let's take the example of baking a cake. I did this on the, on the weekend with my daughter. So a cake is made out of a number of different component parts, right? We have your milk, your flour, your baking soda, your butter, your eggs, and your sugar. But those same individual components could easily be combined to make cookies, donuts, cupcakes, or even bread, depending on how you reframe the problem. A first principle is a basic truth that cannot be deduced any further. And we'll take another example. Imagine that I'm starting a new e-commerce platform, and I'm looking after, for example, just the checkout experience and thinking about what payment system to implement. I'm from the UK, so let's take a UK e-commerce example. There's three basic questions that we can answer to help us get to our first principle. What are we sure is absolutely true? What has been proven? And what are the facts here? So let's take this working example. What we know is absolutely true is that you cannot pay for cash with cash for goods online. Not in the UK anyway. What we know has been proven through benchmarking thousands of e-commerce stores is that at a minimum, they will accept debit card transactions. And what we know is a fact, is that in the UK, 96% of adults own a debit card. So if I was creating a walking skeleton MVP, that payment system would at least need to accept debit card transactions. Second order thinking. So imagine now that we're in a crowd. It's your favorite festival. Let's say Jay-Z and Beyonce, right? can tell there's a lot of fans in here. And you tiptoe to get a better vantage point so that you can see the stage. But almost immediately, you lose that advantage because everyone else tiptoes around you and obscures your view. First order thinking comes pretty simple and easy to most of us. It's like tiptoeing to get a better view. It's all about anticipating the results of our immediate actions. But second order thinking is about thinking further along, not only about our immediate actions, but the subsequent effect of those actions. It's also known as the law of unintended consequences. Let's take another walking example. In the 90s, 
HIV and AIDS was, was kind of running rampant across Africa, and millions of people were dying a year, every year. And one of the contributing factors was the fact that big pharma companies, was that big pharma companies used to make a lot of their money actually from getting patents on research on new drug technology, and often sell that at a rate that's unaffordable to a lot of the developing nations. So organizations such as the Clinton Foundation, the African, African Union, and a lot of the, the governments in Africa had to lo lobby them to produce these drugs for essentially free, to try and control the crisis. But in doing so, after six months, they noticed it was ineffective. And it wasn't that the drugs didn't work, it was simply that the big pharma companies didn't take into consideration the unintended consequences. And the fact that it's difficult to take medicine on time when you haven't got access to a watch or a clock. Let's walk through another example. I always tell my daughter that she's not gonna need a driver's license when she grows up because she's gonna grow up in a world where there's self-driving electric cars on demand. I actually hate driving, I wish that world was here now. So let's walk through second order thinking using this as an example. First order thinking would tell us that there would be a reduction in CO2 emission. Because actually 50% of oil consumption goes to producing petrol. The second order thinking reminds us that actually there's not actually going to be a need for, for petrol stations. Not many people know, but actually the margins made at these petrol stations are all in the convenience store, not the petrol. Hence you're paying like $10 for a crisp and a drink. What a lot of people also don't know is that 50% of cigarettes are bought at these petrol stations. So a reduction in distribution could potentially lead to a reduction in consumption. Furthermore, 2,000 people in the UK die every year from road-related accidents. Tobacco kills 25,000 people a year. This is a good example for thinking through Sometimes what doesn't seem like an immediate market to your markets that you're in can have an impact on the market that you're in. So a tobacco manufacturer has to have considerations for what electric cars could have on their industry. But initially, that's not very logical or easy to see. Let's take another example. So if there's less cars on the road because we, the humans, are no longer driving, there's hopefully less accidents. But second order thinking would say that if there are, then who's liable? First order thinking would also say that there's no longer a need for parking, which means no more parking tickets. The second order thinking would ask, how do we now use this space? Do we use it for productivity? Does it become our meeting space, our office space? Does it become a space that we end up switching off and turning off? And actually, is the car now used for a different purpose? Second order thinking is often very useful when you're making trade-off decisions between your long-term goals, for example, on your quarterly roadmaps, if you use roadmaps, and your short-term gains. For example, what am I gonna get through in this sprint? Because sometimes it's hard to see that correlation of the cumulative impact of what I get through every sprint compared to actually the goals that I wanna achieve over a long time horizon. So often, we think of forward thinkers, innovators, the optimists, people that Ken Norton would say think 10x and not 10%. People such as Pep Guardiola in the beautiful game of football, soccer, 
You know, he's won 17 trophies in the likes of Germany, Spain, and here in the UK. Or people such as Steve Jobs, who needs no introduction, arguably introducing us to the most successful consumer technology product in the last 20 years with the advent of the iPhone. But rarely do we think about people who, who can think backwards. For great thinkers are able to think both forwards and backwards. The great Stoic philosophers, such as Seneca, used to do an exercise called premeditatia malarum. And what they stood for and translates as is premeditations of evil. And what they would do is literally think of the worst case scenario, such as losing a job or losing a home, and then use that to intelligently plan when thinking forwards. The psychologist Gary Klein called this pre-mortems. And pre-mortems is an exercise that many people use in agile processes such as Scrum before doing sprint planning. And during this exercise, what you would do is you would imagine visually that you've launched a product and six months down the line, you've created a product that nobody wants. It's a disaster. You're running out of burn rate. You don't know what to do. And you start to list all of the reasons that it could have gone wrong. And what this list really gives you is a list of risks that you can now reduce and eliminate or dependencies that you can now manage when thinking forwards and starting your plan. So inversion is all about thinking about problems backwards, starting with the end in mind and reverse engineering what problems could occur and using that to intelligently plan forwards by mitigating those risks and dependencies. Another more personal example is one of the things that I guess I'm shit scared of is being a really absent father. So every week I get invited to maybe four or five events, and if I attended each of them, I wouldn't be very present at home. Because I'd leave, the, I'd leave home in the morning while my daughter and my fiancé sleep, and I'd be coming home from work while they're sleeping. So I set a guiding principle that no, longer, no more than two evenings a week am I going to go to any events or socialise or go to any work-related things. Therefore, three days a week keeping me present. But even when I am at home, every five minutes, my phone gets a notification. Either it's WhatsApp, Slack, emails, or that endless scrolling feed of Instagram. So I set another guiding principle that in order to be truly present at home, as soon as I get in, the phone goes off, goes into another room, out of sight and out of mind. And so far, there hasn't been any works, any fires at work after doing that. So we set these kind of guiding principles. They give us boundaries to what we're willing to do and what we're willing not to do. You know, I mentioned Warren Buffett before. He's a great example of this. He sticks to the core of his competence when making decisions. He invested in Coca-Cola and Bank of New York and Bank of America and made a lot of money doing so. He didn't invest in Amazon. He didn't invest in Facebook. He didn't invest in hardly any tech companies because it's not in his core of his competence and he's comfortable with that. But what are you comfortable with when making decisions? Are you 100% opportunistic? Or do you think consciously at what you say no to, regardless if it impacts a revenue opportunity? Inversion is all about finding that unhappy path that you want to avoid and considering the opposite. So there's three things that I really want to summarize when, coming to when thinking about mental models. First principle thinking, it's all about generating ideas from breaking down a problem into its core components. Second order thinking is all about the subsequent effect of our actions. And inversion is the process of looking at a problem 
but backwards. There's five key things that I think are helpful for getting started. Firstly, link mental models to outcomes that you want to achieve. As Josh Seiden, the author, says, outcomes over outputs. Sometimes when we're in execution mode, we get too stuck in producing outputs. We're not really thinking if it's really moving a meaningful needle to the metrics that matter. Secondly, don't concern yourself with finding better decisions. Like I said, this is about finding different, ideas, different solutions to the problems that you're facing. And then just take one mental model and apply it at a time. Keep it simple and keep it small. We've gone through three or four today, actually, really. But just start with one and start simple. Then fourth, like I mentioned at the beginning, write your learnings down. Keep a decision log. For me, that's that Google Doc that I referenced. And finally, stick with it. It may feel a bit uncomfortable at first, but you have to remember that you're trying to form a lifelong habit here that impacts not only how you work, but how you govern and make decisions in your wider life. So there's, actually, there's actually four books and a blog that I want to recommend to you. Um, the first book is, is Principles by Ray Dalio, where he shares kind of his guiding principles and how he makes decisions at work. The second is Super Thinking by Gabriel Weinberg and Laura McCann, which shares a, a range of different mental models and examples of their applications. Thinking Fast and Slow Probably Needs No Introduction by Daniel Kahneman, and Anti-Fragile by Nazim Taleb. And the blog that got me started thinking about mental models at least five, six years ago was the Farnham Street blog by Shane Parrish. So I touched a little bit about inclusion before. And for me, this quote really sums it up quite beautifully. Become friends with people who aren't your age. Hang out with people whose first language isn't the same as yours. Get to know someone who doesn't come from your social class. This is how we get to see the world. This is how we grow. And actually, this is a community that actually lives and breathes that quote, which is awesome. One thing I didn't really account for at the beginning of this talk is that my daughter actually might see this talk on YouTube or Vimeo one day when she grows up. And if she does, using inversion, the worst case scenario is that she might actually cringe and dislike me for it. She might give me the silent treatment. But second order thinking tells me that perhaps there's a small probability that she'll get inspired to start using mental models too. I think one of the greatest kind of gifts that a parent can give a child is the ability to trust them to make decisions that are smart when they're not in a room. And I hope when we can each leave this conference at the end of these two days, that we feel better equipped to make smarter decisions using mental models too. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that talk. And as a reminder, if you click the link in the show notes, you can see the YouTube video if you want to catch any of Andy's slides. And if you're not in MicroConf Connect, you should head to microconfconnect.com. There are more than 2,100 SaaS founders and aspiring founders in our Slack group. It's a great group of people. It's heavily moderated, high, high signal to noise ratio. That's microconfconnect.com. And I'll see you again next week for another episode of the MicroConf podcast.